Hello, this is William Fink of Christagenia.org, and this is Christagenia Internet Radio. I apologize for the delay in the program. At the last minute, the very last minute, I realized the chat server interface was offline, and I played Metallica, Nothing Else Matters, right? <laughs> well, I got it back on, which took a few minutes. It is 11 years ago tomorrow since I registered the domain name, Christagenia.org, and started to build my first website. Now it is getting an average of just over 110,000 unique visitors every month these last two years, although admittedly the numbers are down somewhat since I am still only doing one podcast each week. I am hoping to resume a second. Since January 2014, when I created the current version of the website, there have been over 4.8 million podcast downloads. Of those, 1.5 million came in 2019, in spite of the fact that I've only done one podcast each week. Seven Christiania podcasts have well over 100,000 downloads each. The Immigration Problem and Biblical Prophecy, Strip Bare and Naked, the four segments of Beginnings and Ends, and the Camp of the Saints Revisited. Of course, the podcasts or videos which I leave on the front page always gets the most always get the most attention, and too many people really do not click around past that point, which is unfortunate. But in any event, I praise Yahweh for everything we have been able to do, and I pray that we continue to grow, and that perhaps I am able to continue this project for at least another 11 years. So praise Christ. This is on the Gospel of John, Part 40, The Consolation of Expectation. Discussing the inevitability of persecution as we presented the opening verses of John chapter 16, we sought to illustrate the fact that even today, all true Christians, meaning those who seek to keep the commandments of Christ, should expect to be persecuted by the society at large in one form or another. If a Christian is not being persecuted by the world around him, if a Christian is comfortable in the world around him, then he is not really living for Christ, period. In Romans chapter 6, Paul of Tarsus had described, in part, what it means to live for Christ as Christians who truly seek to do so should separate themselves from sin. Today's churches have become agents for the princes of this world and have created a false narrative urging their members to accept all sorts of sin and sinners based on what they call Christian tolerance. But true Christians should never be tolerant of sin. The true Christian should have already walked away from sin as well as from those who remain in sin. In that chapter, Paul had written, in part, in 
Romans chapter 6. For if we have been planted together in the likeness of his death, we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing this, that our old man is crucified with him, that the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve sin. For he that is dead is freed from sin. Now, if we be dead with Christ, and I'm reading the King James Version, it's straightforward enough for our purposes here. We believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ, being raised from the dead, dies no more. Death has no more dominion over him. For in that he died, he died unto sin once. But in that he lives, he lives unto God. Likewise reckon ye also your members, yourselves, to be dead indeed unto sin, but alive unto God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body, that you should obey it in the lusts thereof. Neither yield ye your members as instruments of unrighteousness unto sin, but yield yourselves unto God as those that are alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness unto God. Obviously, Paul was speaking of a metaphorical death as he wrote earlier in that same chapter that know ye not that so many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into his death. Therefore we are buried with him by baptism into death, that like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. So true Christians should see the sinful nature of the physical body as being dead, so that they can live in the Spirit, which keeps the commandments of God writing later on of sin and the lusts of the body. In Romans chapter 7, Paul said, For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am carnal, sold under sin. In the Roman society of the first century, as it is apparent from Paul's epistle to the Romans, as well as from the writings of pagans, such as Cornelius Tacitus and Suetonius, sodomy, adultery, fornication, and other forms of lascivious, other immoral acts were becoming rather fashionable, even among the highest classes of the citizens. Even many of the archaeological discoveries at Pompeii are consistent with this view of the prevalence of Roman decadence. So in Romans chapter 1, Paul had written about male and female sodomy, or homosexuality as it is called today. And among a list of other sins, he attested that not only were those who did such things worthy of death, but also those who approved of them. Today, most so-called Christians in our Western society are also approving of sodomites, transsexuals, and other such sinners. And anyone who openly stands against this abhorrent behavior is indeed persecuted.
just try refusing some dyke couple a wedding cake. But the commandments of Christ and sin as it is defined in the law of God have not changed. What was sin at Sinai and what was considered sin by the first century apostles of Christ is still sin today. We are all, or at least we all should be, aware of the historic problems with pederasty among the priests of the Roman Catholic Church. Regardless of this disease, even the Church has so far refused to accept such sins as obvious as so-called gay marriage. As recently as 2005, under Pope Benedict, and I hate that term Pope or calling him Pope, but that's his title, the Vatican issued a document forbidding those who practice homosexuality, who have homosexual tendencies, or who support the so-called gay culture from entering the seminary or being admitted to any of the Catholic so-called holy orders, like a brother or a nun. So the Catholic Church rightly takes a public position against sodomy. But that position is weakening among mainstream Catholics, as there are movements within the church to undermine it, some of which have formed formal Catholic organizations. Many people want their supposed religion and their sin too. However, in contrast to Rome, the Anglican Church has not managed to uphold even a pretense of Christian morality and there seems to be little outcry about it in England. The acceptance of sin by presumed Christians has now become so prevalent that the Church of England has virtually been taken over by sodomites. The Queen of England has recently appointed a man who openly advocates for sodomy into the position of Archbishop of York, the second highest position in the Church. We must concede, however, that this actually may be an improvement since he is replacing a nigger. This man, Stephen Cottrell, writes eloquent but specious essays, cajoling Christians into accepting sodomy, appealing to their emotions by telling them that the church might be seen as being immoral if it does not accept sodomites. <laughs> Imagine that. And arguing that the church must change itself to comply with the cultural beliefs of the worldly society. Stephen Cottrell is the virtual personification of those against whom the word of God had warned in Isaiah chapter 5. Woe unto them that call evil good and good evil, that put darkness for light and light for darkness, that put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Woe unto them that are wise in their own eyes and prudent in their own sight. And Stephen Cottrell is indeed the personification of that. 
Preparing for this presentation, I found a book titled Human Rights, Religious Freedom, and Faces of Faith, published by an organization calling itself globalethics.net, which shows how modern liberal humanists are spinning a web of lies in an attempt to turn the generally, or I should say, historically accepted perception of the development of Christianity on its head. It's incredible, this booklet, the lies in this booklet. Writing about the ultimate acceptance of Christianity by the wider Roman world, it says on page 197 that on being moved out of homes, meaning into public churches, or I should say former pagan Roman temples that really weren't formerly pagan, but we'll leave it at that. On being moved out of homes, worship had to adapt to ideas and behaviors expected by society, and additionally to adapt all the rules of the public sphere. On the other hand, church officers sought to avoid everything possible that causes offense in society. This included especially offenses against the well-established cultural rules on gender roles. For the sake of expanding their mission, local churches decided to adapt to the surrounding culture and patriarchal gender stereotypes. The same chapter suggests that Paul of Tarsus himself was complicit in this supposed process, which the writers of this trash have contrived for themselves, for their own benefit. In truth, Christian morality and expected Christian behavior are firmly grounded in the scriptures of both the Old and New Testaments and have not changed. Traditional gender roles and the patriarchal structure of the Christian society exist because the God of the Bible instilled them into his creation and has codified them into his law. But these lying bastards at this New Age Institute are attempting to show that Christianity should be fluid and relative today by falsely claiming that it was fluid and relative in the ancient past, when it certainly was not. Fortunately, the publisher of this refuse, globalethics.net, is a rather obscure website for an apparently small organization. But the problem is that no matter where they had originated, the opinions which they present and the lies which they have espoused in order to validate those opinions also reflect the opinions which are now being echoed at the highest levels of the Anglican Church and also by the current Pope of the Roman Catholic Church. As recently as December 21st, Francis warned that rigidity was turning people away, 
that the church must adapt to a post-Christian West and that the church must adapt or it will become increasingly irrelevant. Saying those things, he is even indirectly denying the authority which the church has claimed for itself for the last 1,500 years. So evidently, it isn't long before the Roman Catholic Church catches up to the Anglican Church in the sphere of moral relativity, and sodomy becomes universally accepted, just as race mixing, which is fornication, has already become acceptable by churches everywhere. This is indeed evident, as Francis was also quoted as having said, Let's remember always that behind every rigidity lies some derangement. Evidently seeking to make those who stand on scripture rather than following moral relativism look as though they are hateful and mad. In fact, Francis would believe that Yahweh God himself is deranged, no doubt, because Yahweh God said, I changeth not. Jesus Christ, the same, yesterday, today, and forever. Then Francis declared that we are not in Christianity anymore, evidently going so far as to seek to separate the church from Christianity, as if it could be an entity which may transcend even God himself. Evidently, the modern churches now esteem sin to be the opposition to the trends of the secular world, which is in direct opposition to the teachings of the gospel and the apostles that Christ, apostles of Christ, who said that Christians must eschew the sins of the world and keep the commandments of Christ. The Apostle John defined sin in Christian terms where he wrote in chapter 3 of his first epistle that whosoever commits sin transgresses also the law, for sin is the transgression of the law, meaning, of course, God's law given at Sinai. So it becomes evident that true Christians must keep the moral commandments in the law, and for that, they will certainly be persecuted, not only by the enemies of Christ, but now even by those who claim to represent him. Sin is not the transgression of the world. It is the transgression of the laws of God, and Christians are persecuted if they seek to actually keep that law. So we may see the truth of the statement made by Christ earlier in this chapter, that they shall put you out of the synagogues. Yeah, the time comes that whosoever kills you will think that he does God a service. That warning may be just as relevant and ultimately just as valid in modern times as it was back when Christ had first spoken those words. Now, regardless of all he has told them, as we proceed with John chapter 16, Christ informs them that they have not yet heard all that they shall need to hear. 
Many things, and this is John chapter 16, verse 12. Many things have I to say to you, but you are not able to bear them even now. So as we had explained in our commentary on verse 4 of this chapter last week, then, and even earlier in John, Yahweh God does indeed dispense information on a need-to-know basis. While the practice is not explained in the Old Testament, it is certainly implicit. For example, in the giving of the law from Sinai to Deuteronomy, or in the promises to Abraham, which, as they are revealed in Genesis, were elaborated upon as he advanced in both years and in his commitment to the faith. Now Christ once again reveals how they will continue to learn. But when he should come, the spirit of truth, he shall guide you in all truth. For he shall not speak by himself, but as many things as he shall hear, he shall speak and he shall report to you the coming things. He shall report to you the coming things. There's a couple of important things going on here. At the end of part 35 of our commentary on this gospel, titled Empathy and Altruism, and at the beginning of part 36, titled The Way, we made the assertion that even after all of this time which they had spent with Christ, the apostles still had much to learn. This passage alone is proof enough of that assertion, and some of the learning experience which they had later in life is recorded in the book of Acts. But even greater learning is reflected later on when they wrote their epistles. Of course, John received many things by the Spirit, and especially those which he recorded in the revelation of Yahshua Christ. But James, Peter, and Jude also wrote of coming things in their epistles. For example, and this is where we tie this scripture in with our introduction this evening. For example, in 2 Peter chapter 2, we read, But there were false prophets also among the people, even as there shall be false teachers among you, who privily shall bring in damnable heresies, even denying the Lord that bought them, the Catholic Church taking the position that we are not in Christianity anymore, and bringing upon themselves swift destruction. Of course, we can't wait for that day. And many shall follow their pernicious ways, by reason of whom the way of truth shall be evil spoken of. And through covetousness, they shall with feigned words make merchandise of you, whose judgment now of a long time lingers not, and their damnation slumbers not. Now, we may think that this applies to any time after Christ, as there were false teachers of Christianity from the first century, and as religion has also been abused for profit throughout the ages. But a few verses later, Peter himself reveals what sort of false teachers he had envisioned, where he makes comparisons to the time of Noah, when all but eight of the children of Adam were condemned for race mixing with the fallen angels, and of Sodom and Gomorrah, 
which were punished drastically for those same sins and many others, from which we had the term sodomy today. Today, it is fornication and sodomy which are being promoted in our modern churches, so these must be the times which Peter had envisioned. Jude shares basically the same message in his lone surviving epistle, also having envisioned these things, and therefore he must also have been taught them by the Spirit of God as he studied the scriptures. This is apparent where he then cites Enoch, and speaking of the same evil times which Peter foresaw, he says, Behold, the Lord cometh with ten thousands of his saints to execute judgment upon all and to convince all that are ungodly among them of all their ungodly deeds which they have ungodly committed and all of their hard speeches which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. So these apostles foresaw a distant time and not their own immediate time. They foresaw circumstances as Christ told them they would see at his impending return, as it was in the days of Noah, so shall it be in the days of the Son of Man. In the final chapter of his own lone epistle, James condemned the wealthy who had heaped treasure together for the last days and had lived in pleasure on the earth and been wanton. Ye have nourished your hearts as in a day of slaughter, he tells them. But then James encourages his readers with the consolation of expectation, exhorting them to be patient, therefore, brethren, unto the coming of the Lord. Behold, the husbandman waits for the precious fruit of the earth and has long patience for it until he receives the early and later rain. Be ye also patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord draweth nigh. The apostles teaching that it was imminent because that's what Christ had told them, that his coming was imminent, whether or not it's two or 3,000 years doesn't matter. As Peter and Jude also described, we have consolation in the fact that our expectation is true, that God is true, and that Christians will prevail over the world in spite of the seeming odds against their prevailing. Men may think of Christ as some sort of underdog, to use a worldly term, but we must know that God does not think of himself in that manner. In fulfillment of the words of Christ, if the apostles foresaw these times, and it is certain that they did, then the victory which they also foresaw shall certainly also be fulfilled. The Spirit of Truth was also described as the Holy Spirit and as the Advocate or Comforter, the Paracletus. Throughout the discourse of Christ in these chapters of John's Gospel, we must remember that from John chapter 13, we are still in John's account of the words of Christ on the final evening before the crucifixion. Note that Christ had said, as it is recorded in John chapter 
14. Even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it sees him not, neither knows him, but you know him, for he dwells in you, he dwells with you, and shall be in you. I will not leave you comfortless. I will come to you. So there, Christ had revealed that he is indeed that spirit of truth or comforter to whom he refers here. Once again, it is evident that God refers to a manifestation of himself in the third person, as Christ is Yahweh God incarnate, but he also referred to the Father in the third person. He is the promised comforter, as he himself had attested. Yet he speaks of that comforter in the third person. Christ and his Father are one, as he also attested, and therefore Christ and the comforter are also one, and not two or three. Then, immediately after identifying himself as the comforter in John chapter 14, Christ had exclaimed that yet a little while, and the world sees me no more, but you see me because I live, you shall live also. This is the comfort or consolation that Christians must have in their expectation. Christ exclaims at the very end of this chapter that I have prevailed over society. If we are Christians, we must follow him and keep his commandments in spite of society, because in his comfort, which is the Holy Spirit, we know that we shall live, and therefore, through him, we shall also prevail over society. Continuing to refer to the spirit of truth, Christ continues, John 16 verse 14. He honors me because he shall receive from of me and shall report it to you. All things, as much as the Father has, are mine. For this reason I said that he receives from of me and reports to you. Verse 15 is absent in the in its entirety in the 3rd century papyrus, P66, and in the Codex Sinaiticus, which the editors of the Nestle Aland Novum Testamentum Grece seem to justifiably attribute to a copyist's error, which was most likely committed because of the similarity of the final words of the verse with those of verse 14. I happen to agree, and that's why even though it's missing in perhaps the two oldest known co copies of John, or close to it, it's still in the Christogenia New Testament. Of course, before the alienation of the children of Israel, Yahweh interacted with his people through his spirit. So we see the phrase, the Spirit of the Lord, very, frequent, very frequently in the King James Version Old Testament. So the word of Yahweh spoken to Ezekiel in chapter 11 of his prophecy said, Therefore prophecy against them, prophecy, O son of man. And the spirit of Yahweh fell upon me and said unto me, Speak, 
Thus saith Yahweh, Thus have ye said, O house of Israel, for I know the things that come into your mind, every one of them. The children of Israel were being punished because they did not have a mind to keep the commandments of God and had rather slipped into iniquity. Likewise, in a messianic prophecy in Isaiah chapter 48, we read, I, even I, have spoken. Yeah, I have called him. I have brought him, speaking to the children of Israel collectively, and he shall make his way prosperous. Come ye near unto me. Hear ye this. I have not spoken in secret from the beginning. From the time that it was, there am I. And now Yahweh God and his spirit have sent me. Thus saith Yahweh, thy Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel. I am Yahweh thy God, which teaches thee to profit, which leads thee by the way that thou shouldest go, that thou, oh, that thou hast hearkened to my commandments. Then had thy peace been as a river, and thy righteousness as the waves of the sea. Thy seed also had been as the sand, and the offspring of thy bowels like the gravel thereof. His name should not have been cut off nor destroyed from before me. True prosperity results when we keep the commandments of God. When we fall into sin, the enemies of our God become prosperous. That prosperity, another aspect of the consolation of our Christian expectation, is described in part in Revelation chapter 14. Here is the patience of the saints. Here are they that keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. And I heard a voice from heaven saying unto me, Write, Blessed are the dead which die in the Lord from henceforth. Yea, saith the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors, and their works do follow them. But regarding all of those who worship the beast, who join themselves to the world and conform themselves to the sins of the world. Earlier in that same chapter, we read, The same shall drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out without mixture into the cup of his indignation. Without mixture, it won't be watered down. And he shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment ascends up forever and ever. And they have no rest day or night who worship the beast and his image and who whosoever receives the mark of his name. This is the end of all of the race mixers and sodomites who have taken over the modern churches, as well as those who are outside of the churches. Continuing in sin, when they have opportunity to know the truth, a mere profession of Christ does not save men from facing the punishment of their sins. For that reason, the Word of God said in Daniel chapter 12, And at that time thy people shall be delivered, every one that shall be found written in the book, the children of Israel are all written into that book. And many of them that sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, 
some to everlasting life, and some to shame and everlasting contempt. An eternity in shame and contempt may still be resurrection, but it is not a pleasant resurrection, where evidently even God himself distributes his mercy accordingly. In chapter 2 of his epistle to the Ephesians, Paul of Tarsus reflects the understanding that to be in Christ means that one has departed from sin, as he wrote concerning the children of disobedience, among whom also we all had our conversation in times past in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath, even as others. But God, who is rich in mercy, for his great love wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead in sins, has quickened us together with Christ. By grace you are saved, speaking to the lost sheep of the children of Israel, the people of whom Yahweh said in Jeremiah, the people who were spared of the sword, the children of Israel who, su who survived the captivities. The people who were spared of the sword found grace in the wilderness. Paul is in the wilderness preaching to them the gospel of Christ. Even when we were dead in sins, he has quickened us together with Christ and has raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness towards us through Christ Jesus. So later in chapter 5, Paul encouraged his readers to be followers of God to depart from sin, where he wrote, but fornication and all uncleanness or covetousness, let it not be once named among you as becometh saints, neither filthiness nor foolish talking nor jesting, which are not convenient, but rather giving of thanks. For this you know, that no whoremonger nor unclean person nor covetous man who is an idolater has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Let no man deceive you with vain words, for because of these things comes the wrath of God upon the children of disobedience, being not ye therefore partakers with them. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, Paul discouraged his readers from a similar list of sins. Be not deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminates, trannies, would fall right into that category, nor abusers of themselves with mankind, speaking about sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners shall inherit the kingdom of God. We can all, being sinners, enter into the kingdom of God, but we had better repent of those sins. And the time to repent is here and now, not then. Likewise, in 1 Timothy chapter 1, he mentioned them that defile themselves with mankind in a similar context. The word arsenokoites is traditionally and correctly defined as one who lies with a male 
as with a female, a sodomite or a homosexual. It is the same word that secular Greek writers had used to describe sexual acts between men. It is punishable by death under the law and condemned in the New Testament as well. As we have said, Paul explained at the end of Romans chapter 1 that not only those who commit such acts are worthy of death, but also those who approve of the men who commit them. It is no wonder that with the Roman Catholic Church slowly moving away from its own traditional view of Christianity, or I should say from its own view of traditional Christianity, the current Pope would exclaim that we are not in Christianity anymore. The world is indeed corrupt. The churches have joined the corrupted world. And the consolation of our expectation is that we shall indeed overcome the world because our God has already overcome the world. But true Christians also have an obligation to separate themselves from those corrupt churches. Once again, Christ continues by speaking of his current circumstances. Shortly, and you shall no longer see me. Then again, shortly, and you shall see me. Earlier this same evening, in John chapter 14, Christ offered them an expectation of consolation where he told them, Yet a little while, and the world sees me no more, but ye see me. Because I live, ye shall live also. But they still did not understand him. And we see that again here as they continue to question him. Now, where I say earlier this same evening, I don't mean in our presentation this evening. I mean in this conversation, this discourse which Christ has with his apostles, which began at the end of the so-called Last Supper in John chapter 13. From John chapter 13 all the way through John chapter 17, we have one unbroken discourse between Christ and his apostles as they conduct and finish the Last Supper, as they depart from that house, as they travel to the Mount of Olives, as they enter the Garden of Gethsemane where he is arrested. All those chapters are really one discussion which Christ had with his apostles over the course of a single evening. So we see again here that they still did not understand him. Therefore, some from among his students said to one another, what is this which he says to us shortly and you shall not see me? And then again, shortly and you shall see me and that I go to the father. Then they said, what is this he speaks? Shortly, we do not know what he says. There are notes here where some manuscripts interchange forms of the words laleo and lego, words, words which can mean either say or speak. The differences in this passage is between the words say and speak are arbitrary, and we have say where the verb laleo appears and speak where lego appears. The two words being synonyms, surely I did not carry that practice throughout the entire Christogonian New Testament. 
even though Christ had told them much earlier and on at least several occasions that he must go unto Jerusalem and suffer many things of the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised again in the third day, as it reads in Matthew chapter 16. The apostles still did not understand that it is that same thing to which he had been referring throughout this discourse. So the questions continue. Yahshua knew that they desired to ask him, and he said to them, Concerning this, you inquire with one another, because I said, Shortly, and you shall not see me, then again, shortly, and you shall see me. Now his answer offers consolation regarding a more immediate expectation in verse 20. Truly, truly, I say to you that you shall weep and lament, but society shall rejoice. You shall be grieved, but your grief shall be made into joy. So Christ foretells of immediate grief for his disciples and of the joy they would realize once they are past that grief. Once again, this is also a repeat and an elaboration on things which Christ had explained to them earlier this evening, as we read in John chapter 14, from verse 28. You have heard how I said unto you, I go away and come again unto you. If you loved me, you would rejoice, because I said, I go unto the Father, for my Father is greater than I. There we explain that the apostles did indeed realize that joy, and in their epistles they wrote about the joy which they had in Christ, and had implicitly described it as the ultimate consolation of our Christian expectation. For example, where Peter wrote to the Christians of Anatolia in his first epistle, that the trial of your faith, being much more precious than that of gold that perishes, though it be tried with fire, might be somehow found, I'm sorry, might be found unto praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ, whom, having not seen, you love, in whom, though now you see him not, yet believing, you rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory, receiving the end of your faith, even the salvation of your souls. Now Christ compares the process which his disciples would suffer of grief and pain followed by joy to a woman in childbirth. When a woman gives birth, she has pain because her hour has come. But when she should give birth to the child, no longer does she remember the distress on account of the joy because a man has been born into society or into the world, if you will. The word for pain is lupe, which is the same word rendered as grief in the context of the surrounding passages where it appears in reference to the grief of the apostles. In Isaiah chapter 66, this same analogy was used of the ultimate deliverance of the saints and the destruction of the enemies of God, where it must also be speaking of those same future circumstances that the apostles had foreseen and which we evidently suffer under today. But it was also speaking of the fate of the Israelites of the Assyrian captivity, 
as all prophecy has both an immediate and a transcendental fulfillment. So we read from Isaiah 66, 4, and we will tarry with this chapter for a few minutes. I also will choose their delusions and will bring their fears upon them, because when I called, none did answer. When I spoke, they did not hear, but they did evil before mine eyes, and chose that in which I delighted not. And this is important, because as Paul explained in Romans chapter 1, sodomy was not the sin they were being punished for, or that they were going to be punished for. The sin that the Romans were going to be punished for was because they had taken the word, the truth of God, and turned it into a lie with their paganism. The Romans were ancient Israelites who turned to paganism 1,500 years before Paul was writing, or at least 750. So sodomy was part of the punishment. Paul explains that God gave them up to those fleshly lusts as punishment for giving him up in place of idols. Now here, Yahweh says of these people in the future, I will also choose their delusions because when I called, none did answer. And here we have all of these people today turning to sodomy and this tranny craze. And next it's pedophilia and then it's bestiality and there's no end to the madness. It's going to keep declining until the end, until they are all destroyed. Hear the word of the Lord, ye that tremble at his word. Your brethren that hated you, that cast you out for my name's sake, Christ telling his Christian disciples that keeping his commandments, they would be cast from the synagogues or perhaps today from the churches. Your brethren that hated you, that cast you out for my name's sake, said, let Yahweh be glorified, but he shall appear to your joy and they shall be ashamed. Here it is evident that men who sought to keep the commandments of God have suffered throughout history, even long before Christ had warned his apostles of that same thing. Continuing with Isaiah, a voice of noise from the city, a voice from the temple, a voice of Yahweh that renders recompense to his enemies. Before she travailed, before she brought forth, before her pain came, she was delivered of a man-child. Who had heard such a thing? Who has seen such things? Shall the earth be made to bring forth in one day? Or shall a nation be born at once? For as soon as Zion travailed, she brought forth her children. And these children are the nations which would result from the deportations, the captivities and deportations of the children of Israel to which Paul was referring in Romans chapter 4 and in Galatians chapters 3 and 4 and elsewhere in his epistles. 
again, continuing with Isaiah, shall I bring to the birth and not cause to bring forth, saith Yahweh. Shall I cause to bring forth and shut the womb, saith thy God. Rejoice ye with Jerusalem and be glad with her. All ye that love her, rejoice for joy with her. All ye that mourn for her, that ye may suck and be satisfied with the breasts of her consolations, that ye may milk out and be delighted with the abundance of her glory. For thus saith Yahweh, Behold, I will extend peace to her like a river, and the glory of the nations like a flowing stream. Then shall ye suck, ye shall be born upon her sides, and be dandled upon her knees. As one whom his mother comforts, so will I comfort you, and you shall be comforted in Jerusalem. And when ye see this, your heart shall rejoice, and your bones shall nourish like an herb. And the hand of Yahweh shall be known toward his servants, and his indignation toward his enemies. All this is metaphorical of the ministry of Christ. For behold, Yahweh will come with fire, and with his chariots like a whirlwind, to render his anger with fury, and his rebuke with flames of fire, the second coming of Christ. For by fire and by his sword will Yahweh plead with all flesh, and the slain of Yahweh shall be many. They that sanctify themselves and purify themselves in the gardens behind one tree in the midst, eating swine's flesh, and the abomination and the mouse shall be consumed together, saith Yahweh. For I know their works and their thoughts. It shall come that I will gather all nations and tongues, and they shall come and see my glory. <coughs> in the end, all nations and tongues of the dispersed children of Israel shall be gathered. As the context also now indicates in a passage which also reveals the identity of the dispersed children of Israel. And I will set a sign among them, and I will send those that escape of them unto the nations, to Tarshish, Pul, and Lud that draw the bow, to Tubal and Javan, to the isles of far off that have not heard my fame, neither have seen my glory, and they shall declare my glory among the nations. I know the King James originally says, Gentiles, but it should be nations. And all of this has a double fulfillment. The first fulfillment was with the fall of Jerusalem, of which Jeremiah was writing, that the children of Israel should have joy in its fall because greater things would come of it, like a woman giving birth to a child. But it has another fulfillment, as we shall see. Not 200 years after Isaiah had written these words, indicating where the children of Israel, taken into captivity, were going to be sent, the people historically known as Chimerians, Galatahi, who were the Gauls, or the Galatians, and Scythians, the Germanic peoples of modern times, began to appear in all of these places, which can be identified along the southern coasts of Europe from the region around the Caspian and Black Seas and west all the way to the Iberian Peninsula. Continuing with Isaiah, 
And they shall bring all your brethren for an offering unto Yahweh out of all nations upon horses and in chariots and in litters and upon mules and upon swift beasts to my holy mountain Jerusalem, saith Yahweh, as the children of Israel bring an offering in a clean vessel into the house of Yahweh. And I will also take of them for priests and for Levites, saith Yahweh. And now in a revelation of the distant future, the transcendental fulfillment of Isaiah's words, which all Christians should be expecting, becomes manifest as these things are prophesied anew in the revelation and have not yet been completely fulfilled. For as the new heavens and the new earth, which I will make, shall remain before me, saith Yahweh, so shall your seed and your name remain. And it shall come to pass that from one new moon to another, and from one Sabbath to another, shall all flesh come to worship before me, saith Yahweh. And they shall go forth and look upon the carcasses of the men that have transgressed against me, for their worm shall not die, neither shall there be, neither shall their fire be quenched, and they shall be an abhorring unto all flesh. So it is evident that the word of God is true, but the Christian shall not receive the final reward of its fulfillment without much pain. Like it in Isaiah to the pain of a woman in childbirth, as Christ describes the trials and travails which his disciples must also undergo. So while we suffer and may even be persecuted in the world today, the assurance of the word of God and our final victory is the consolation of our expectation, just as the apostles of Christ and the obedient Israelites of antiquity were also assured. So Christ continues to address their grief and console them with that promise of joy. Therefore, you also have grief. Indeed, but I shall see you again and your heart shall rejoice. And no one takes your joy from you. While Paul of Tarsus was not one of the original disciples and was not present here, he nevertheless had received the spirit of truth, and by it he understood all of these things. So in Romans chapter 15, he described the consolation of expectation and the joy which the nations of scattered Israel should have by the gospel of Christ their Messiah, where he wrote, Therefore I say, Yahshua Christ came to be a minister of circumcision in behalf of the truth of Yahweh, for the confirmation of the promises of the fathers, and the nations for the sake of mercy honor Yahweh, just as it is written, for this reason I will profess you among the nations, and I will sing of your name. And again it says, Rejoice, nations, with his people. And again, praise Yahweh, all the nations, and commend him, all the people. And again, Isaiah says, There shall be a root of Jesse, and he is arising to be ruler of nations. Upon him the nations have expectation. Now may Yahweh fill you with that hope with all joy and peace in confidence until you overflow with expectation in the power of the Holy Spirit. Moreover, I am persuaded, my brethren, even I myself concerning you, that you are also full of goodness, being full of all knowledge, 
being able then to advise one another. But honoring Yahweh, the nations were being called to obedience, to keep his commandments. As later in that same chapter, Paul mentioned the compliance or obedience of the nations, and then mentioned the obedience of the Roman Christians in chapter 16, while commending them for it. And then in the closing verses of the epistle, he once again attested that the nations were called to the submission or to the obedience of faith. In Romans chapters 5 and 6, Paul described that same obedience as a departure from sin, the faith requiring Christians to be, to be obedient as Christ had said, if you love me, keep my commandments. So the true Christian faith requires obedience to the commandments, to the commandments of God. As Paul also explained in Romans chapter 6, what then? Shall we sin because we are not under the law, but under grace? God forbid, know ye not, that to whom you yield yourselves servants to obey, his servants you are to whom you obey whether of sin unto death or of obedience unto righteousness. But God be thanked that you were the servants of sin, but you have obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine which was delivered to you. Being then made free from sin, you became the servants of righteousness. Therefore, one cannot be a sinner, one cannot be a sodomite or a race-mixing fornicator, or any other type of sinner, and still pretend to be a Christian. Pope Francis is under grace, but her name used to be Harry, or Irving, perhaps. Although one may get through this world under that pretense, God himself will not be mocked, and in the end that presumption of Christianity will be of no profit to the sinner nor to those who accept them. Later in Romans chapter 6, Paul explained, But now being made free from sin and become servants to God, you have your fruit unto holiness and the end everlasting life. In the context of his previous explanations, being made free from sin meant that one should depart from sin not that continuing in a sinful life would be somehow ignored or even blessed by God. It certainly will not be blessed by God. Of such men, Paul had written in Hebrews chapter 6, For it is impossible for those who were once enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift, and were made partakers of the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the good word of God, and the powers of the world to come, if they shall fall away, to renew them again unto repentance. So we see that falling away is falling into sin. Seeing they crucified to themselves the Son of God afresh, and put him to an open shame. These churches, embracing all these faggots, pedophiles, sodomites, and all these other sinners, fornicators, they crucify the Son of God afresh 
attempting to put him to open chain. They've got to know what they're doing. I can't imagine they've ever read the Bible and don't know what they're doing. So Paul then exclaimed in the final verse of Romans chapter 6, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. That gift is the Christian expectation. Now Christ is evidently speaking of the attainment of the joy by which it brings us consolation. And in that day you shall ask me nothing. Truly, truly, I say to you, anything you would ask the Father in my name, he shall give to you. The Christogenian New Testament had a minor error here. It had this verse to read in part, anything you shall ask the Father. Yet the verb is an aorist subjunctive, and it would be better read as anything you would or should ask the Father. So I have now corrected that. Strangely, the correct version stood in the translation notes, so it may have been an error in typing the translation. Here we cannot imagine that Christ is speaking out of context of worldly or material gifts, as the prosperity gospel hucksters want their followers to imagine. Christ is speaking of that day meaning the day when he should come, the spirit of truth, as he had just promised them in verse 13. And then, as it says here in verse 19, that Yahshua knew that they desired to ask him concerning the meaning of his words to them. They would ultimately be able to inquire through the Holy Spirit and receive the understanding of his word without having to ask him directly. That is what he means here. It cannot be put into any other context which Christ did not speak it in, which Christ did not mean it to, to be in. Christ put it in this context. That day is the day the spirit of truth comes, and anything they ask is any questions they had concerning the things he told them. So in Ephesians chapter 1, Paul wrote of riches far beyond the worldly desires of the prosperity hucksters, praying for his readers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give unto you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. The eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that you may know what is the hope of his calling and what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. So this is what Christians should pray for, to be assured in the expectation of their consolation. That phrase works both ways. I know that I said it there opposite the title for tonight's presentation, and that is by design. It is not by accident. Until now, you have asked nothing in my name, and you shall receive, I'm sorry, ask, and you shall receive, that your joy would be fulfilled. The apostles have asked Christ questions directly, but evidently they had not yet thought to ask anything of God in a prayer in the name of Christ, which he has now instructed them to do. 
Next, he admits having spoken to them enigmatically, for which reason they have not been able to understand him completely. I have spoken these things to you in parables. The hour comes when I shall no longer speak to you in parables, but with frankness I shall report to you concerning the Father. These reports are not found in the records of our New Testament scriptures. As even in Acts chapter 1, after the resurrection and immediately before his ascension, Christ did not answer their questions fully. Evidently, their answers would only come through their future prayers and study of scriptures by the Holy Spirit or Spirit of Truth. Paul would later write in his first epistle to the Corinthians, but as it is written, I has not seen nor ear heard, neither have entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for them that love him. But God has revealed them unto us by his Spirit, for the Spirit searches all things, yeah, the deep things of God. Christ continues, verse 26. In that day you shall ask in my name, and I do not say to you that I shall ask the Father for you. For the Father himself loves you, because you have loved me and you have believed that I came out from Yahweh. Yahshua Christ is Yahweh God incarnate, the physical manifestation of God in his creation. And therefore, he was the light made at the beginning of the world, even before the creation of the sun, moon, and stars. And at the end, in Revelation chapter 21, where the city of God is described, he is the light once again, as the city had no need of the sun, neither of the moon to shine in it, for the glory of God did lighten it, and the Lamb is the light thereof. The glory of God produces the light, which is Christ. So he is from God, but he also is God, God incarnate. As we also explained early in this commentary, the assertion that Yahshua Christ is the light come into the world is a direct refutation of the ancient claims of kings to be the bearers of light, as kings were the lawgivers in ancient societies. Yet Christ is the true light and the only righteous lawgiver. Being the Holy Spirit, as he has also attested, his children may inquire through his Spirit, if indeed they keep his commandments so that he may dwell with them. This he said in John chapter 14. Jesus answered and said unto him, If a man loves me, he will keep my words, and my Father will love him, and we will come unto him and make our abode with him. He that loves me not keeps not my sayings. As Pope Francis said, we are not in Christianity anymore. And of course, the Catholic Church was never really Christian. They were never right. But now they admit that they've forsaken Christianity. If a leader of a true church of God wanted to remain steadfast in the truth, he might say the world is not in Christianity anymore. 
but he certainly wouldn't say that about his church or with the general expression, we are not in Christianity anymore. He that loves me not keeps not my sayings. And the word which you hear is not mine, but the Father's which sent me. So all of these modern clerics who bless fornicators and sodomites obviously cannot love either Christ or God. But as John also attested in chapter 1 of this gospel, Christ is the true light which lights every man that comes into the world and he was in the world, and the world was made by him, and the world knew him not. The supposed church leaders who attempt to conform what they call Christianity to the whims and sins of the world evidently do not know God. I came from the Father, and I spoke to society. And again, I leave society and I go to the Father. The apostle still did not quite understand this. So now they exhort him to speak plainly. His students say, John often used the present tense for verbs, even if we would expect his students said, I translated it to the best of my ability according to the tense that John actually used. His students say, look, now, you speak with frankness and speak not with any parable. We know that you know all things, and you have no reason that one should question you, or perhaps no necessity that one should question you. By this we believe that you have come out from Yahweh. He had no necessity or perhaps reason that anyone should question him, yet they had need to question him often, and their questioning him and staying with him, in spite of his often enigmatic answers, helped serve to prove that they did actually believe him. Now he refers to that belief. Yahshua replied to them, even now do you believe? This remark may have been interpreted as a plain statement, as the editors of the Novum Testamentum Grece also note, where it would be translated, right now you believe. However, the following verse reveals that it should be a question, because he is challenging their claim to believe. Yahshua replied to them, even now do you believe? Behold. The hour comes and has come that you shall be scattered each to his own affairs and you will leave me alone. Yet I am not alone because the Father is with me. Now that phrase, to his own affairs, comes from the phrase, the Greek phrase, ta-idia. Ta-idia is translated his own, period. In John chapter 1, verse 11, in the King James Version, where we have copious notes explaining precisely what that means, his own lands. Paedia may be his own affairs or perhaps his own place. Perhaps Christ said here that they would each be scattered, each to his own place, and you will leave me alone. Yet I am not alone because the Father is with me. 
The hour has come because he has nearly reached the Garden of Gethsemane, and his arrest and execution are imminent. The record is evident that upon his arrest, his disciples were scattered. This was unavoidable, as it was prophesied in the Word of God in Zechariah chapter 13, Smite the shepherd, and the sheep shall be scattered, as it is recorded in Matthew chapter 26, and in Mark chapter 14, but not here in John. Earlier this same evening, and before they left the house where they had dinner, Christ had cited those very words from Zechariah in reference to himself. Now he once again declares what is the consolation of their expectation. I have spoken these things to you, that in me you should have peace. In society you have distress, but you must have courage. I have prevailed over society. This is how we have consolation in expectation. Because Christ had already prevailed over society even before he was slain. But his being slain made the way for the children of Israel to be reconciled to Yahweh their God so they would live just as he still lived. As it is written in the words of the wisdom of Solomon, God created man to be immortal and made him to be an image of his own eternity. God will not fail even in spite of the man which he created. And in Christ, all of those whom he created shall have life, as Paul also attested in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. But all of the bastards shall be destroyed. And if any of those charlatans who are leading the Christians of the West into fornication and sodomy still attain to that resurrection, if they indeed be among his people in the first place, then surely theirs will be a resurrection into shame and everlasting contempt. The look on Stephen Cottrell's face will be priceless. I named him the coming Bishop of York and advocate of sodomy, because I believe he is probably an Adamic man, an Anglo-Saxon. But Pope Francis, he's a devil, and he's a bastard, and he's going to be destroyed. Of that, I have no doubt. Praise Yahweh. Thank you for listening, and good night.